When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Very good morning to you and actually looking across at the rest of the week it really is a lovely, lovely, lovely weather forecast. Real gorgeous spring weather with temperatures actually slightly above average for this time of year so long may that last and long may we continue to enjoy this uh, dry, warm spell that we're getting, our mild spell that we're getting at the moment. John Paul taking your calls at 1850 333 103. You can text your WhatsApp 086 to uh, 103 103. As you probably would have guessed, all of the newspapers are full of reaction to the nurses' strike and the Irish Nurses and Medical Organisation, what they now have to do to persuade their members that this is the best offer on the table. And just looking at the broadsheets today, and a lot of them running with front page stories on it, including, for example, the Irish Independent, are now saying, and this was the fear factor about the nurses' strike, teachers may be next in line to uh, strike after the nurses have got a deal that's believed to be worth about 35 million euro. The government now coming under pressure to come up with an early agreement with the teachers unions after offering the nurses a better package for recent recruits. Other public sector unions now dissecting the deal. They're going to be discussing with their members about the potential for knock-on claims. The Irish Times are leading with the Gardaí are examining whether they can use the terms of the new proposals that led to the suspension of the nurses' strike to form the basis of a new pay claim for their uh, members. And the examiner say it isn't over yet because they say that the Irish Nurses and Midwives organisation faces an uphill struggle to convince its members to accept the Labour Court's pay recommendation, raising the likelihood that nurses could soon return to the picket line. The bulk of members take it to social media and to the airwaves yesterday certainly expressed their anger in ter- at the terms which the Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue said would cost £15 million this year and up to £35 million next year. And there was a lot of commentary on social media yesterday. The, the examiner actually today just picking out some of the comments that came up on social media. Let me just give you a flavour. Not all nurses are happy with this. And I would be interested if there are any nurses listening to us uh, this morning as to how they feel about what has been agreed by the INMO. Now, I know Phil Nihay from the INMO came out and said, you know, whoa, hold on a tick. 
wait. It's going to take us about three weeks to get around to all the nurses around the country. Let us talk to you. Let us sell you the deal almost. But what's been leaked out and what's come out to the media certainly is not making a lot of nurses uh, happy. Here's just some of the comments. Uh, Katie Ann uh, says, I'm really disgusted at this deal you are putting forward to your members. Obviously, aiming this at the INMO. Uh, my mother, poor mother, rang me this morning. Absolutely gutted at the INMO represent. She's an INMO representative in her hospital that all the hardship and the days off she spent on strikes have harnessed nothing for either herself or her colleagues. Uh, Karen said, please don't settle for anything less than pay parity. 95% of us nurses voted for better conditions, were stressed, were exhausted and were broke. Please, please don't give in. 45,000 people turned out for our protest last Saturday because they believe that the nurses deserve so much more pay parity please and of course this deal is nothing close or near to pay parity. Uh, Lorraine on Facebook says the INMO I've been in awe of the amazing focus and hard work and sheer determination over the last few weeks however I cannot believe the same organisation is now willing to step back and even examine recommendations that go nowhere near solving the crisis on the ground in our workplaces. We are no further on. I'm so shocked. I'm so disappointed and totally disillusioned at this point. Please stay with us. Now, a couple of people did except what the INMO are doing and were a positive one. For example, Susan says, well done on all the hours and hours of hard work. I hope you managed to get a good night's uh, sleep. Um, Agnes said, thank you. I look forward to the next step. This is for the future of nursing. And I will always say that Saturday will be one of my proudest moments as a nurse. That was the big uh, protest that was held in Dublin last week. And just one final one from Elaine on Facebook saying, very disappointed. It took 10 minutes to decide on calling off the strike action. Yet it's going to take two to three weeks to explain to members why. The Labour Court recommendation didn't doesn't see the comp doesn't seem complicated to me. I believe most of my colleagues agree it's an insult. Don't let us down by even putting it to a vote. Strike action should resume and negotiations recommence. Very disappointed in our leaders uh, today. And I feel Nihay I'd say had, had a difficult day yesterday. She, it's almost like she went from in some nurses' eyes, she went from hero to zero. I mean, last week, everybody was singing the praises of Phil Nihay and what a great negotiator she was. And she was, you know, standing tough and was, you know, accepting nothing less than pay parity uh, for, the, for the nurses. And to hear some of the nurses talk about her yesterday and how disappointed they were with her, that saying hero to zero very much came to mind. Anyway, if there are any nurses uh, listening to us or if you've got a member of your family who is a nurse, their views so far on what has happened and are they happy that the strike has been called off? from patients' point of view, certainly patients are very, very happy that there there's a three days of strikes this week would literally have almost crippled the health system, but it just would have put people, vulnerable people, people who are on pain, people who are waiting for procedures, people who are waiting for outpatient appointment. It would just have made the lists that are already long, it just would have made those longer still. And I know a lot of the hospitals are saying it's going to be quite some time for them to do catch-up on the three strike days with the number of outpatients that now have to be rescheduled, the number of surgeries that now have to be rescheduled and procedures. And it's going to be months, 
rather than weeks before they finally do catch up making up for those three days of lost work by the nurses. 1850 103. Coming up on the programme today, we're going to be discussing drinking on the streets of Cork. According to one local councillor, it has become a free-for-all. So we're going to sort of look at what can be done. Why has it become so bad? There's bylaws in place that say you're not allowed to drink in public. Be interested to see what kind of antisocial behaviour it's leading to. And I know certainly if you're out and about and you come across a group of people who are drinking and maybe being a little bit loud because of the drink, it can be very intimidating and it, you know it might be forcing people to avoid areas because they know that drinking goes on there. We'll talk about that on the programme today. Also, very interested to hear the County Council's plans for the old GAA grounds in Mallow. They have been idle now since the boom. There was great plans for, was it 700 houses were going to go in to the lands at the old GAA ground in Mallow. But of course that never happened. So what now for that particular parcel of land? Uh, A new book offering tips for anyone who is to be a bridesmaid this year. This is a delightful book that we came across and we're interested to hear from anyone who has a bridesmaid story, good, bad or indifferent. Uh, Were you a bridesmaid? Did you enjoy the role of bridesmaid or were you with the bridezilla? Did that make your role very, very difficult? Or were you the bride and were you wrong in your choice of bridesmaids? Or we'd like to hear the very positives as well. Did you have the best bridesmaids ever? If so, why? What did they do? to make your day so special and to make you feel so special in the run-up to your uh, wedding. And a very ambitious plan for the old Church of Ireland church in Mitchellstown, St George's Church. If the group behind this project pull it off, this is going to be awesome. It is going to be probably the most amazing arts and heritage building anywhere anywhere in Cork City or our county if they manage to pull this off it really is very ambitious we'll get more details of that on the programme today and it is Wednesday so Peter Dowdle our resident gardener will be joining us answering all of your gardening questions if you've been out and about uh, gardening in what has been lovely weather this week or you've got a question about something going wrong in your garden get it into us please On the nurses strike Michael says Patricia very simple very easy to fix the nurses strike and all other potential strikes in the public services Just give them a 10% pay rise across the board and then raise income tax by 10%. End of story. And will everyone be happy? Question mark, question mark, question mark, uh, says uh, Michael. It was one of the arguments actually put forward by a lot of the nurses, particularly nurses who felt that their gross pay that they have a high enough gross pay. Remember, there was a couple of nurses contacted us to say their gross pay is uh, fifty thousand euro, which they if they feel they're happy enough with. But it's their take home pay they're not happy enough with, and they're talking about all the taxes and the PRSI and the USC and their pension contributions, and they're not happy about that. But of course, as the the argument that's put back straight away to the nurses is everybody has to pay the very same. Unfortunately, even though they they their pension contribution may be higher, but then the flip side. That is that when they do retire, they retire with a decent pension. John and Cove says the nurses should have stayed on the picket line. They should have remained there until they got what they wanted. The nurses had them where they wanted them and they should have stuck to the picket line. They should have only returned to work when everything was sorted. John in Cove feel that nurses gave up too easy. And listening to some nurses talking yesterday 
and reading some of the commentary on social media, there certainly are a large cohort of nurses who are very angry with the executive of the INMO and Phil Nihay and the rest of her negotiators and would agree with you, John, will feel that they gave in too easily. Obviously, from the patient's point of view, there was a huge sigh of relief on Monday evening around tea time, wasn't it, when it broke that the strikes were off, particularly for people who had appointments on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of this week. So while sick people and people in need of hospital treatment were relieved, you are right in that all nurses certainly weren't uh, relieved. But I don't know, sticking to the picket line, would the government ever have given in and given them what they want? Would they ever have given them the pay parity? Because the danger was if they gave pay parity to the nurses, the danger was all of the other public sector workers, the guardian, the teachers, I already mentioned this morning, they're already examining the terms of the new proposals that the nurses have received to see if that will form a basis for them for new pay claims of their own. So if they gave pay parity, it was just going to open the floodgates. I really don't think that the government, no matter how long they stayed out on strike, I really don't think they could have given in on that one. 1850-333-103. And we mentioned this yesterday. In This is another one of these scam calls. This time it's a scam revenue call. And we mentioned it, maybe it was yesterday, it was yesterday or Monday, we mentioned it because we were getting reports in from up the country to say that the guard, the, I think it was in Meath, Roscommon area, were receiving calls from people who were getting a call purporting to be from the revenue commissioners. And it looked like it was coming from a Waterford number, an 051 number. So we called it out because we said, look, if this is happening in Roscommon, Meath areas of the country, you can guarantee they'll move down and it'll be happening here in Cork. Lo and behold, we got a flood of calls yes, late yesterday and again this morning from people saying, yes, those hoax calls claiming to be from revenue have hit the Cork uh, area. The call comes from, from an 051 number. Now, I saw a screen grab that somebody sent in. It actually says Waterford. You know, sometimes they look like they're a local number or they look like they're coming from Waterford number. This actually says it is a Waterford number. And when you answer the call, it's claiming to be from revenue you and they're telling you guess what that you're entitled to a refund and of course if you engage with them in order to get the refund they will look for your bank uh, details. Adam was on to say I got that call um, but the other way around it was claiming I owed revenue mo- money oh no that's even worse I have advised revenue says Ellen about the call I'm sure revenue must be sick to the teeth of getting calls from people now saying that they're getting these phone calls Teresa said I'm absolutely sick of these calls from revenue or from Aircom such a waste of time and effort trying to answer them all and Rosari says those calls are now starting to trickle into West Cork I live in West Cork and I have already received one this morning and the fear is that if you receive one you may receive many more so keep a look out for that because as I say this one comes up looking like a Waterford number and that might lead people to think that it's a genuine call from the tax office and people might be inclined to answer and engage with them 1850 John Paul takes your calls text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Flora Gaelga, RC 103. 
in the Yishin Hosikshay UFC le John Kavanaugh Maharain Ali. Ta Galasan Magab, the notorious August Mystic Man. Ta Shay Kuikri Ne Norlok in Arda, August Teresh Doctrine of Wunche, Kenyan Shay Uridor Dovain. Ta Shay Fahane Mlin Dish, August Ta Poshta Warnigan, Connor Jack, Lena Fortner D. Devlin. A say untamed champion, Ernok, a tall wing, the UFC. Sin Aline Korok Master. Porsche ain't paid million dollar than trade a Gwyneth Mayweather a Lunasa a Nurig. Is far on sever a gone in a go. A blur Gwelga is Misha Podge de Bertun or Gwell Skult Mostavish Paula. CK'd as a three Kirkig. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Now, street drinking is becoming a free-for-all in the city with the latest figures showing a massive increase in, pre- in people drinking alcohol in public. What problems is it causing and what are the possible solutions? Joining me, former Lord Mayor of Cork City, Councillor Des Cahill. Good morning to you, Des. Morning, Trish. Uh, you're welcome. Now, I'm quoting you when I use the phrase free-for-all. What are you personally witnessing on the streets of Cork? Okay, well, for me, the transform, the, the change has been, there has always been an element of street, street drinking, um, but there was areas where it just didn't happen, and now it seems to have mushrooms where areas, you know, there's no area that isn't a no-go area. It's a bit noisy and a move here. Uh, it's, so there is, no-go, there is a no-go areas anymore, and that, that was my concern. So I put the question to the city managers regards what are the numbers here, and the numbers came back even more startling, I'd have to say. Uh, like a rise from approximately 50 three years ago to 350 last year. Um, these are, that's shocking. And these are the figures for people who were fined because it is illegal to drink alcohol on the streets. It is illegal to drink alcohol on the streets, be it, in a, be it on the side of the road or be it on a bridge or be it outside of a pub that isn't licensed to have outside drinking. It's, it's all of the above. It's not just one type of outside drinking. Um, but there is a, an exorbitant amount of outside drinking on the street now. Uh, I'm not, you know, happy with it, and I don't think it's 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 something that we should have to tolerate in the city excessively. Um, it obviously happens in cities. We know that. I'm just saying there's an, a, a, a drastic increase in numbers, um, and it's something I'd like to see addressed. But if that many people are being fined, Des, does it prove that the bylaws are working? No, I mean the, the point of bylaws of most laws are a deterrent. They're not, they're, you know, particularly when it's, it's, it's a bylaw of this nature which, where there's a fine issued. So the, the purpose isn't to get revenue from the fine. The purpose is to reduce the habit. I think the increase in fines is showing that there's an increase in habit. And that's, that's the issue. It's, it's, it's not that there aren't people being fined. It's that the sheer volume of people doing it. Uh, because we all know that fines are only a small percentage of the amount of people Mm. actually doing it. Mm. Um, it actually, so it's actually proving, while, yes, they are taking in some of the fines, but 75% are being paid, but 25% not being paid. But what it is proving is that there is a, a large increase in the volume of people doing it. So if I could offer one solution, which was given to me by a guard, he suggested that the fines should be increased incrementally at each, at each offence. So in other words, unlo- not unlike penalty points, and the money would come direct out of, uh, of direct from source. So that would be either from your income or from your state income, either one. 
and that you know the first fine would be a, a smaller amount, the second fine would increase, the third, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to kind of re-emphasise the um, the difficulty people have with it. So if, if, if a member of Angarda Siakonish suggested that to you, Des, I take it he's coming across repeat offenders. Correct, correct. And I suppose he, he would have said that, you know, sometimes when they do get to court, the judge won't impose a fine. So, um, you know, so that the judge may well take the view, look, there's no point fining because they don't really have enough money to pay the fine. So why would I impose a fine? Which is why it's not necessarily the amount that's increased initially. That's why an incremental amount would be more of a deterrent. And money would have to come out of source. And does the street drinking cause a lot of antisocial behaviour, in your opinion? It does. It does. I mean, from my own kids who get the bus, they're shouted at at the bus stop from any age of person drinking excessively. Um, this is in broad daylight. You know, this is just general antisocial behaviour. Um and, and, you know, it shouldn't be tolerated. I mean, I, ma- I make a point that this doesn't occur in shopping centres, which is why one people, some people would say it's all to do with parking. Um, but if you, you know, you can appreciate you go to any one of the major shopping centres, they're private property. There's no, there's no drinking, there's no drugs, there's no organised um, uh, begging from illegal groups that we've had, you know, we've discussed before. Mm. Um, no chuggers, which is the, the charity muggers. This is the uh, the phrase for them so it makes a much calmer cleaner safer environment and there's no reason we can't replicate that in the city if we control those elements of antisocial behaviour better Yeah and it certainly is intimidating for people if they see a group of, of people drinking and usually if they're drinking they're drunk and they can get noisy and it's just it's, it's intimidating It is intimidating and I don't think anyone can can can, can say it's not Um and you know we all we we all we're all part of society. We should all adhere to you know the law of the land. We should all adhere. We should all be conscious of the other people in the city. And you know it's when you know a very single, small, single digit of of the population is 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 ruining for everyone else. It's incumbent on us to actually you know make it safer for all, not just you know not just accept that these things happen and move on. We should always try and improve. Nora in Mallow says you don't have to go to the city, Patricia, to see street drinking. It's common to see people walking down the main street in Mallow uh, with alcoholic yep. cans in their hands. And there's bylaws in Mallow as well that it, it, it that it is illegal. And it's Rag Week this week, uh, Des. Yes. W- would w- will we see an increase in street drinking because of Rag Week? I suspect we potentially will because the street, it's all different guises. But uh, you know, reports regarding today, they're very happy with. Uh, with, the, with, with yesterday, there wasn't really any issues, so they, they feel as if that they they've you know that they've managed. It's, it's become more manageable in the last couple of years. A lot of interaction between the colleges and the Gardaí and the local residents. So um, hopefully, everyone will have a you know a, a, a you know a, a, an enjoyable week, but at yeah. the same time, you know, mind mind mindful of the fact that they they have neighbours um, and have a safe week. And you know, it's it's it's. You know, we don't. No one ever wants to see anyone tarnished for the rest of their life. For you know, a, a silly mistake. Um, equally, you would be concerned about safety with roads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, thankfully, all went well yesterday, and I'm I'm hoping that the, the rest of the week will will continue. Yeah, to be and a, nobody, a nobody, you know, nobody wants to be killjoy in all of this. No. it's you know, it's it's almost part of college life to have you know enjoy Ragwick. 
but but your your point is is a really valid one. We want people to enjoy it. You don't want something stupid that in ten twenty years time will come against you. No, 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 and you, and, and and even God forbid uh, an accident. Yeah, because of, uh, you know that you live with for the rest of your life. Exactly. So you know, so we hope for you know a, a safe one, an enjoyable one, and just one that's really conscious of its neighbours and. I think we're getting there and I think yesterday was a good start and I'd be hopeful the rest of the week will, will be the same. Okay, and before we let you go just on a slightly different topic, we spoke with the current Lord Mayor yesterday, Mick Finn, about mm. the possibility of the directly elected Mayor. What mm. is your view on that position? I mean, you were a former Mayor. Are you in favour of a directly elected Mayor for Cork City? Well, I think they should be clear in what they're saying. This is yeah. a directly elected Chief Executive who will be called a Mayor. Yeah. To associate it with the Lord Mayor's office is, is false. And people should be, it should be explained to people that this is a role of a chief executive, not of the Lord Mayor. Um, so it just, you'll just have to be called mayor. Um, there is a value in it, but I fear that if they don't explain it properly, people won't know what they're voting for. And we've had this problem before with referendums. Um, so I don't think they're explaining it properly. I do think there is a value in having a directly elected executive. Um, I don't see any value in having a directly elected Lord Mayor. I think the fact that it rotates and it moves and actually this this term that I was a member of, we had all all parties and non-party had the opportunity to be Lord Mayor for the first time ever. Um, it gives a variety to the job. We all have a different way of doing it, which is a nice thing. But the directly elected Mayor is the Chief Executive's job. It's not yeah. a, it's not a, an ambassadorial job that I would kind of describe the the Lord Mayor's job. Yeah, and that so. ambassadorial job that really helps to highlight charities and community groups in Cork by, you know, the number of events that you attend uh, when you're Lord Mayor. It, yes. I, I would have a fear that a lot of those groups will, will miss out because if, if it, and you're right, the, the new role will be as, as a chief executive. They're not going to have time to be going around to all of those events. Absolutely not. There's actually talk that there would still be a Lord Mayor. In the same way, you have a Mayor of London and you actually have a Lord Mayor of London City. Yeah, that makes more sense. So I think that's what they're going to do, but you need to explain that to people. It needs to be explained to people better yeah. as to what the job is. And nobody knows exactly what the job is. I mean, we're, we're like shooting in the dark at the moment with even trying to have discussions around it. All right, Des, listen, we leave it there. Thank you for that. Thanks, and uh, thanks a million for joining us. That is uh, Councillor uh, Des Cal. 1850 333103. John Paul taking your calls, text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. And don't forget, next Monday morning, make sure that you are tuned in to Simon Murdoch on Cork's More Music Breakfast at 815 tune earlier though but be there at 8.15 because on 8.15 Simon will be giving us our first superstar of the day this is all to do with the C103 cash tracks we have 5,000 euro a pot of money filled 5,000 euro worth in that pot and we are going to be giving it away every day starting next Monday Simon will give you the superstar of the day make a note of the superstar of the day it will change every day and then stay tuned to C103 when next you hear two songs back to back from that day's superstar you need to get uh, dialing 1850 333 103 and caller 50 will then win 5 
hundred euro. That's the C103 Cash Tracks with Cavanus, the new name for Ford in Mallow. For new and used car sales, visit Cavanus.com. And just a couple of comments in on street drinking. Donal in Douglas says, of course there's drinking going on in car parks. Law and order in Cork City does not exist. It's gone completely. Donal says, I am in business in Douglas and I have not seen a Garda on patrol on the streets of Douglas for seven years. All of a sudden, everything is back out in the public domain and we're all discussing these problems. Why? Because there are elections coming up at the end of May. Uh, People need to keep in mind what they're voting on at the local elections and have your say, uh, particularly about the people who will be making decisions for our city going forward. That's Donal in Douglas, not a happy camper. And Kathleen is also in the city. Kathleen says, we need more Gardaí on the beach. She's kind of backing up what Donal is saying. We need more Gardaí on the beach. Yes, presence has in- increased, but we need more walking around all the areas, not just the main streets. We need for people to see Gardaí out on the beat and that certainly will act as a deterrent. 1850 Now let me move on because fears have been raised that the land acquired by a construction company that has since gone into liquidation could be sold off to another developer who might seek to have the land rezoned for housing. Joining me to discuss the land at the old GAA grounds in Mallow is North Cork Councillor John Paul O'Shea. Good morning to John Paul. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, and, and you're welcome. Now, for those outside of the area, just remind us about how Castle Lands Construction acquired this parcel of land. Well, I suppose, Patricia, um, uh, Castellan's uh, construction, um, I suppose, acquired this land um, and built a new whole GA complex uh, for Manalgy outside in Carragoon, which I presume all your listeners would know about as the state of the art um, facility for uh, the people of Mallow and surrounding areas. And I suppose at that stage, uh, Castellan's construction was going to proceed to building uh, houses on that land, but unfortunately, due to recessionary times and due to going to receivership, um, that is no longer the case. And I suppose uh, subsequent to that, Cork County Council were in discussions with the receiver in relation to uh, transferring that land into Cork County Council ownership for the development of uh, recreation and sporting facilities for the town. Now, Castle Lands at the time, was it 700 houses they wanted to build in, in that development? I'm not sure, Patricia, to be honest, I'm not sure of the of the ins and outs of it, but I think certainly uh, at that stage there was going to be a proposal to put in um, a large housing scheme into that uh, area. Now, as I said, uh, part of that as well would have been um, a significant amount of uh, infrastructure needed to be provided uh, to accompany uh, that type of development, uh, which is uh, certainly not the case and hasn't been provided to date. Well, we were um, dealing with a different a different era, uh, really, at the, the time. It was, it was in the mid- I, middle of the boom. Okay, what if the council... Reaching back, Patricia, as well in relation to um, there was a link road proposed uh, to go from that south side of the town right over um, to the main uh, Mallow Cork Road, and that would have been a significant piece of infrastructure to be provided uh, to accommodate any housing development of that size in that area. God, I'd forgotten all about that link road, and and, no. and it's and it's not that long ago, but it almost seems uh, like a dear, like a lifetime ago at this stage. Have the council tried to acquire the land? Uh, we have, Patricia, and I suppose uh, I haven't been directly involved in this because this is something that the executive would be uh, more keenly involved uh, with, but I suppose uh, 
there's been many reports in the Manway area going back to the old town council days in, re- in relation to providing the necessary, I suppose, uh, amenity and recreational and sporting infrastructures in the town. And uh, certainly as a local councillor in the area for the last 10 years, I've known and been acutely aware of the, the need to, I suppose, enhance our facilities from a sporting and a recreational point of view. And I suppose it's only when those lands became into receivership that Cork County Council had discussions with the receiver in relation to transferring that lens or purchasing that lens um, for that case. Now, I suppose subsequent to that, we did review our local area plans um, that commenced in 2016 and that was brought into fruition in August 2017. And part of that process, we went out to public consultation and we did get many, uh, I suppose, um, submissions and requests. But at the end of the day, um, uh, the members voted for to uh, rezone that land, including other lands in that area, into a total of 26 hectares, which is a significant amount of land for open space and recreation and sporting facilities in that area. So it's, it's, it has never been zoned for housing? Uh, well, it was, Patricia, back in the Maritime Council days. Okay. Um, but I suppose the decision was taken by the members of Cork County Council back in 2016 and 17 when we did review the local area plan process. And that has now been, I suppose, rezoned for open space um, and for the development of recreation and sporting facilities uh, in that area. So I suppose... Like, what, what, what are you talking about? Sports fields? Running tracks? Absolutely. Absolutely, Patricia, and there's a cute need uh, to represent those because going back to, the, as I said previously, the town council time, there was a, an audit done um, in relation to, I suppose, the facilities that are available within the town and many discussions were had in relation to how we need to advance um, the town park, for example. Many, many uh, examples were, I suppose, also uh, brought forward in relation to how we can advance the grounds around the castle and tankery. Those are two projects that are proceeding in Mallow Town, but there was also a, a, an acute need to identify some extra sporting facilities uh, for the town to cater for the increasing population, first of all, but also as well as to cater for um, the South Desert Zone in particular, which are lacking facilities. I can hear people say, John Paul, all well and good. It's fantastic to think that we would have wonderful sporting amenities. But do we not need more houses built in Mallow? Oh, absolutely, Patricia. And uh, one of them has, we have actually one of our first uh, strategic housing developments that was mentioned in the article last week in relation to an application that will go straight forward to on board Panola uh, has been taking place in Mallow. And there's um, 140, 168 houses, sorry, my apologies, are being built in, in the um, Ballyvinitra area. So there's a number of planning applications for both social and private housing developments uh, taking place in Mallow. But certainly, Patricia, I'm not saying that uh, there shouldn't be housing development in Mallow, but I'm certainly saying that we need to provide uh, the recreation and sporting facilities as well, which I, I've got several requests about, and I'm sure other local authority members have had several requests about as well. We need to get the balance right. We need to build the houses, but we also need to make, make as, we, as we do not just in Mallow, this needs to be everywhere, we need to make uh, our towns and cities a good place to live. Oh, absolutely, Patricia, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, when we do progress uh, local area plans, this is what local area plans are all about. They're providing a strategic view on how towns like Mallow can be developed over the next six years. So, like, I mean, the reality was we didn't take this decision lightly. I think we've taken it in, dis- in, in discussion with the receivers, in discussion with the, the local community, because they've all had an opportunity to feed into that. And I suppose the concern has been raised, uh, I suppose, from the local community in relation to now, uh, I suppose, changing that zoning 
back into a housing development, which I said, which I said earlier is going to be a very difficult uh, process to do now because, um, you know, first of all, we don't have the infrastructure in that city of to cater for a huge advance, uh, advancement of, of housing, both private and social housing. So there is a requirement in relation to providing uh, amenities there, and that's what we've provided for within the 2016 local area plan, and that's our, that's our vision. Now, we did, uh, as as members of the, the Kentork Mallow Municipal District, we, we, I suppose, outlined our disappointment that the receivers had pulled out of discussions with Cork County Council in relation to uh, Cork County Council purchasing the land off them. Um, but we encourage them to, to re-engage with those discussions and to remind uh, the receivers that Cork County Council and its members had made a decision back in 2017 to rezone that in, in relation to amenity and uh, uh, recreational facilities. And as as of now, the members have no indication or no, um, I suppose, inclination to change that status uh, and uh, we would like to see... But, it, but is it true, is it true, John Paul, that on board Planola could come in over your heads and overrule the council and rezone the land? Uh, no, Patricia. In relation to, as I've mentioned previously, the only type of uh, construction that can go forward in relation to uh, directly to on board Planola is a strategic housing development. And that uh, needs to make sure that, I suppose, it's a development of 100 houses or more, but that can only happen on land that is zoned for residential uh, uses. Okay. So this this isn't the case in the in the case in point in Carrickeel. Now there is a, um, a, 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 I suppose another avenue that they could go around as a relation to I suppose providing houses in excess of one hundred as well that are not zoned but would provide accommodation like student accommodation. But that doesn't apply to Carrickeel. Uh, okay. All right. So that, in, no, that's... in my view, Patricia, there is no other way okay. in relation to this receiver can can go and change the land. Okay. They have to go through the process, which is we, uh, Cork County Council's process of reviewing the local area plan. We will keep an eye on uh, this and see how the executive get on trying to acquire the land. Before I let you go, Michelle and Mallow has been on to say, could you ask Councillor John Paul O'Shea, please, when will the proposed bus stop for the south side of Mallow, when will it be completed? Buses were supposed to stop every hour on the Limerick to Cork route. That's right, Patricia. So I brought forward a motion, I think, um, this time last year in relation to it. And DNTA, who are responsible for the National Transport Authority, they're now responsible for bus uh, shelters nationally. So we consulted with those and they've agreed with Cork County Council to install one. Uh, now, there is some, I suppose, um, safety requirements that have to be put in place. So there's clarification required. When you're talking about the south side of the N20, that's straight across from Mallow General Hospital. There's a, there's a bus stop on the Mallow General Hospital side. But across the road, there isn't one. So people have to go across the road and stand. And that's a busy road. At the side of a very busy road. Yeah. Now, Cork County Council has raised some concerns in relation to the NTA's proposal, in relation to where the envisaged stop would, would uh, I suppose, be fitted from a safety point of view. And we're hoping those discussions will be finalised shortly and to install a bus shelter. Because it is, uh, I think, something that was brought to my attention uh, over 12 months ago in relation to, uh, I suppose, people that use the facility of management hospital. Uh, they mightn't be in the best of health. They might be coming there for a certain reason or a certain um, you know, a test. Uh, and, for example, they have to come down to the bottom of the road and stand in a very open space waiting for the bus to come. So I'm very conscious of that, uh, Patricia, and to get that as quickly as possible. OK, keep us informed. Thanks for that, uh, John Paul. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, good morning to your North Cork Councillor, John Paul O'Shea. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Yesterday, we were talking about teaspoons with regard to baking. Remember one of our listeners, Rob, he was forced and he wasn't able to go to work yesterday because of the rain. So he was staying at home doing some uh, baking and he had that quandary of 
how much is in a teaspoon when the recipe says one or one tablespoon and he wants to know what size spoon should be should be using using it there to a flood of reaction lots of really good bakers listening to this programme but it's prompted somebody unfortunately there's no name on this WhatsApp to send in a lovely photograph that actually has, has evoked memories for me I have to say and it's a photograph of an old tablespoon that this listener says that belonged to my grandmother and beside it in the photograph this listener has put a normal dessert spoon that you'd get today and you can clearly see a dessert a dessert spoon from today is much smaller than what traditionally was an old tablespoon and it looks to me like it was probably silver or silver coated but it reminds me of whenever I would visit my grandmother they were huge big spoons when you got dessert you were given this spoon and it was a tablespoon to have your dessert with. And they were huge. But you felt, and as children, they felt they looked even bigger, you know, in a smaller hand, this big spoon. But just looking at it, they clearly, the old fashioned dessert spoons were certainly much bigger than the dessert spoons that we have uh, today. So thank you. As I say, the photograph of the spoon brought memories back uh, for me. And I wonder how many people, if you did open your cutlery drawer today, I wonder how many people still have those old spoons that would have belonged to a mother or a grandmother. And if if my memory serves me right, some of them are actually silver. Some of them are actually marked. But they were used as dessert spoons when you went traditionally. It would have been things like rice pudding was given. You know, that gorgeous rice pudding that, uh, and, and I don't know if anybody still does this today, where you bake it in the oven. And when it comes out of the oven, it has that gorgeous brown crust on the top of it. And there'd be a fight for who'd get the most of that brown, that burr, almost, it was burnt, wasn't it? But the taste of that was absolutely gorgeous. And then you'd be given one of these big spoons to eat your rice pudding with. And they were just huge spoons. But I wonder how many people still have some of the spoons. I bet you a lot of people still do because they were spoons that were built to last. They really were. Not like today's. We get rid of them and they're thrown out and they're gone and you replace them and you new ones were whereas when our grandparents and, and indeed parents bought a canteen of cutlery they were designed to last that's for sure Hi uh, thank you by the way once again to that listener sent in that picture Hi Patricia Tom here on WhatsApp just want to say are things gone mental in Ireland again I went into a shop this morning to purchase three slices of white pudding to take away I was charged one euro and eighty cent like sixty cent for a slice of white pudding. Is this crazy or what? And by the way, I know the price and the taste of Clonakilty puddings, the best puddings in the world, are they not? Uh, And this certainly was no Clonakilty pudding. It was a cheaper version. But is that really expensive? 60 cent for a slice of white pudding. And most, I take it, takeaways in delis, that's how they do it. It's you pay per sausage per piece of white pudding. 60 cent for a slice. I mean, a white pudding, would you get 10 slices out of a white pudding? White or black pudding, you would. So say going at 10 cent, or say going, saying 10 slices at 60 cent, that's 6 euro. That's a good bit of profit. Now I know they've got overheads and costs and all that, but that does seem a tad expensive. Would others agree? Tom wants to know. 1850-333-103. Some comments in reacting to Councillor John Paul O'Shea, who joined us in the last hour. And in particular, we were asking John Paul about the rezoning of land at the OGAA grounds in Mallow. 
and the council are of the view that they want to keep it as an amenity for sports and uh, recreation. Uh, Philip says, uh, hi Patricia, could you ask John Paul O'Shea? he's gone off the line. Why was Mallow Rugby Club removed from Carrickeel? Carrickeel is the name of the, the land where the old GA complex that we were talking about is. Why were they removed from Carrickeel? They were catering, are they catering for 220 children a week with the site now vacant and gone into disrepair? Would it not have been better to see it utilised and not overrun with horses? Is it overrun with horses, Philip? Um, thank you, Philip. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I must, uh, well, if they had permission to, if Mallow Rugby Club, would have to get on to somebody from Mallow Rugby Club, if they had permission to use the grounds at Carrickeel, I take it that permission would have come from the developer who then went into liquidation. Was it to do with the liquidator? told them not to use the grounds anymore. It does seem crazy if they're lying in disrepair when it could have been used to cater for 220 children. Anybody from the Mallow Rugby Club can let us know what happened there and why were they asked to vacate what now is a vacant site. And someone else kind of critical of Councillor John Paul uh, O'Shea saying like the rest of Fine Gael, all talk, zero action. A bunch of young fellows who were incapable of making any progress. The minimum housing commitment made last year wasn't even met and we are in a housing crisis. I myself was refused planning permission twice on our own land in North Cork to build our family home. Cork County Council are a bottleneck for progress. The roads are a disgrace. Towns like Canturk and Newmarket are a disgrace to look at uh, if John Paul and the other councillors are serious and they want votes next May they need to step it up well John Paul O'Shea did send um, and he was welcoming the CSO figures that were out for last year for the number of new house bills in Cork County and the new house bills in Cork County for 2018 was one was it 1,500 houses were built more than 2,500 houses were bought out of long term vacancy and almost 800 dwellings and unfinished housing developments were uh, completed but there was 1,500 new bills in Cork and while he welcomed that he did say they need to drive to build more ho- more homes but I can sense this listener's frustration and being refused planning permission how often are we hearing about that now? I don't know the ins and the outs. I don't know why this person was refused uh, planning, but it is a real bug bear for a lot of listeners when they get uh, turned down. Morris says, good morning, Trish. I was in a friend's house last evening when the RTE News was on. Now, our health minister, Simon Harris, was giving his apology. But what struck me was the amount, or should I say, the lack of TDs in the chamber listening to him make his apology. This, to me, would have been seen to be an important issue, surely. I can only imagine the few that would have been there if the issue was deemed not important. If you and John Paul decided, look, Ira, sure, today is not that important, we won't go to work, how long would you have your jobs? Like most people, not for very long, uh, says uh, Maura, isn't it a great uh, country? And I didn't notice, actually, I'm trying to think, did I did I see the scene of him in the door? I thought there would have been a packed house for that. And it was well flagged that Minister Simon Harris was going to make an apology. I really would have thought he would have got a, a full house. Uh, Pat is also commenting on the apology and says, Minister Simon Harris may have got it wrong, but he's man enough to have come out 
and say it and apologise. Not like Mihol Martin, who just likes to blame somebody else for his own shortcomings. Uh, Pat, not happy with the Fianna Fáil uh, party. And there's a lot of commentary in the paper actually about Simon Harris and his sincere apology in the Dáil for not being upfront as the political crisis over the hospital. Though that does rumble on. I was interested to hear the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, say there are contractors who, quite frankly, should never be hired for another major project again. And the Taoiseach has alleged that some companies are lowballing. This is what it's called. Uh, this is a new term for me, low-balling, when they come to bid for state work. He says, we will also examine the issue of the low-price tenders and whether we should look at going for a medium price instead. And he's now promising an overhaul of how tenders are awarded. The practice of committing to major projects before there's clarity on the final costs uh, also has to end. But this notion that you can go in and bid the lowest, knowing you're going to win the tender. And then you can go back in afterwards when everything's signed, sealed and delivered and just up the price is absolutely nuts. And obviously that's called, it's called lowballing, where the company, now I can accept the prices can go up and that when you're doing a build, you'd know this if you were doing a build, building your own house or building an extension or whatever and you agree a price and then things can go wrong you know, in the middle of the build or you might change your mind on something or you might decide to add something and I can appreciate that costs would rise then. then. But what's happened to the National Children's Hospital is completely different. I mean, it does look like the the tender that went in was way lower than anybody else. And to me, alarm bells should ring straight away. If somebody is quoting something that is way off what everybody else is quoting, that to me, in, in a private capacity if I was, you know, getting a quote for anything, that to me would raise alarm bells. And of course, the big story out of yesterday was the, the hit list of projects who are uh, that are going to be affected by the hospital overrun. We spoke about this yesterday because we knew that it wasn't it Pascal Donoghue, the public expenditure minister, he had to go before the Dáil and outline some of the areas that are now going to be hit because they need to make up the extra shortfall for the National Children's Hospital. And there was a hit list of projects yesterday. We're not getting all of them, but some of them were announced, were mentioned yesterday. There's going to be delaying, for example, of the Dublin to Derry cross-border motorway. That's a huge project. I think it's about 27 million or something. That's going to be deferred. There's also going to be a rescheduling worth 24 million of spending on other health facilities. Now, there's no specifics here on this. We mentioned this yesterday, that it's going to restrict the things like the purchasing of MRI machines are CAT scan machines or if a machine breaks down and needs to be replaced, things like that are going to be affected. But we don't have the detail. All we have is that the total is going to be 24 million less is going to be spent in health facilities all of us all over the country are going to suffer because of that. There's other things like there's the rescheduling of the 10 million that was due to be spent on the National Forensic Science uh, Laboratory. There's a rescheduling in the drawing down of 16 million from two regeneration projects. There is the reprofiling of 4 million in, in payments in certain investment projects. Don't really have much detail on that uh, either. Here's one that will cause upset to to whichever 
parts of the country it'll most affect. Three million is to come from the Flood Risk Management Programme that's from the Office of Public Works. Three million is to come from the Department of Finance and Public Expenditure. And there are also to be changes in the timing of the two million in in payments relating to certain capital works by the Department of uh, Culture. So I take it from that that there isn't a government department that isn't going to be affected in some way while they try to claw back the money that is needed, the extra money that is needed to build the National Children's uh, Hospital. But someone was on earlier, if I can find the WhatsApp, talking about the National Children's Hospital and just talking about the importance of it. Um, Michael has, this is Michael says, Patricia, I think it is both disgusting and scurrilous, the shenanigans, the, the shenanigans of the media politicians and everywhere to look or listen that you listen to about the cost of our National Children's Hospital. It is about the most vulnerable in our society, our poor, innocent, sick children. I don't care, said Michael, what it costs. Our defenceless, innocent children should always be paramount. That is actually written in law. Are we as a nation going to carry on to disown them as we've done in the past? How many other contracts in this country have run hundreds of thousands over budgets? Budget, and not a geek. If we as a country cannot provide proper hospital care for our young, innocent, sick children through no fault of their own and not self-inflicted, whilst the healthy enjoy all the beautiful trappings that good health brings, then we should have a serious look at ourselves. If this was a mega super stadium for the GAA or for the rugby union in which you would have the wild fowl of the air discharging their waste on six days of the week, would we have all of this exposure? No, we wouldn't. May God forgive those who are using and fueling this for both personal and political gain at the expense of our innocent, sick children. No words can explain their shenanigans. Thanking you very much. C103 Jobs. A full-time bar supervisor is wanted. That's for Albert Lynch's in Mallow. While apprenticed electricians and qualified electricians are wanted. Super value in Borbui. They've got a vacancy for a deli assistant. That job does come with flexible hours with weekend work included. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is... C103. Now, my next guest's latest book is a must for anyone who has been asked to be a bridesmaid this year. It covers everything from the dress to the hen party to the big day itself. Joining me with lots of advice, Natasha McAward, who has just published The Irish Bridesmaids Guide. Good morning to you, Natasha. Good morning, Patricia. And you're, you're very welcome to the programme. Do the majority of females love being asked to be a bridesmaid? I think they do. I mean, it's such a it's such a big honour because it's such a special day for the bride and groom, and to know that you're um, wanted to be a, a part of that and, and trusted for the the responsibility it involves. Um, now, there's going to be a little bit of anxiety too for a lot of people, but um, I think by and large, it's a, a very happy thing to be asked to do. And how does the bride go about selecting who would be the bridesmaids? It isn't uh, many years ago. It was always just the sisters. We've moved away yeah, from that. We have really, and um, it's uh, it really just tends to be who's who's closest to the bride, and you know who she can rely on. And a lot of brides will, might have three or four bridesmaids, and that can be a way to keep everybody happy. You know, sometimes you will find there's a bit of politics involved that she's expected to ask certain people, <laughs> um, but usually um, 
the bride will have have at least one that's uh, who she really wants there for her on the day. Because there, you taught, you write in the book about different types of bridesmaids. That's right. Yeah. Um, so uh, just um, came up with a, a few different types that brides might find themselves dealing with, or indeed other other bridesmaids. So, um, for example, you know the the flake who's uh, who's ne- never does what she's meant to do, and you know something always comes up. Or then there's the the know it all who uh, would prefer to you know organize organize everything and you no know, doesn't doesn't agree with the way the bride is doing anything. Um, then there's maybe the the reluctant one who's uh, you know has got way more going on in her life and isn't really that interested in in the wedding and uh, just you know turns up when she has to. But you can tell her heart's not really in it. So ho- hopefully most bridesmaids don't put into any of those categories. But, <laughs> <laughs> now the bridesmaid's dress. This can be a big bone of contention because I mean going on the line that we've got four bridesmaids to dress. It can be a big bone of contention. I mean, the, the the obvious first one is different sizes and shapes. I know it can be really hard to, to keep everybody happy. Um, and especially if you do have such a such a large number of bridesmaids. And um, what I've what I've suggested in, in the book is that, um, you know, they don't all have to wear exactly the same dress. For example, you can get um, the same fabric and get different styles of dress made up so that each bridesmaid gets to wear something that she feels comfortable with. Um, that's something that um, I've seen over the years. I know Amy Huberman did it for her bridesmaids and they look gorgeous. They all had the same pink fabric, but it was just different styles. One of them was pregnant, so she had the empire line and, gorgeous. Um, you know, they all got to, you know, feel comfortable in what they were wearing. So um, that can be one option. Another one, maybe if it's colour, that's the issue. You could have, you know, a range within the spectrum, like, uh, you know, different shades, purple or something like that. Um, but really, there's, you know, a bit of a bit of give and take and uh, it's the bride's choice at the end of the day. But, you know, most, most kind brides wouldn't want their bridesmaids to wear something that they're not happy with. Yeah, and can it be difficult if the bride has her heart set on something and the bridesmaid doesn't like it? It can be difficult and, you know, there's there's only going to be a, a certain amount of flexibility there, especially the colour, because you'll um, usually find that the colour of the bridesmaid dress is, is the main colour of the wedding and the bride might have planned other things around it, like her stationery or decorations, um, all that sort of thing. So uh, you um, may not be able to have much say there, but... You know, there's a lot more um, scope for uh, input into the, the style of the dress because um, really there's there's so many different options out there nowadays and uh, it should be possible to keep everybody happy. Okay, and a lot of brides like all the bridesmaids looking the very same and the story that I told um, um, earlier when I was teeing up this with on the breakfast show with Simon and Natasha was uh, I heard of a friend of mine who was uh, getting married and she had four bridesmaids and they all she deliberately picked her bridesmaids based on their hair they all had long straight blonde hair and that was the look that she was going for and on the day of the wedding one of the bridesmaids the day before had gone out got her hair not only cut, she dyed it purple. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and the photographs were shocking. I mean, she stood out like a sore thumb. She I'm stood, sure she did. She yeah, stood yeah. out like a sore thumb. So Not quite the vision the bride had in mind. Yeah, no. So if the, if the discussion has to be had around the hair, you have to have discussion around the hair. Now, the hen party is probably the biggest responsibility for, for any bridesmaids. That, I take it, can be as extravagant or as cost effective as possible. That's it. I mean, there's so many different options. You you know, you hear of brides going all out and heading off to Las Vegas for a wild week away. And uh, then at the other end of the uh, spectrum, you might have um, 
you know, something something at home, whether it's a potluck dinner or a, you know, grown up slumber party, something like that. Um, and really, you know, there's uh, there's no need to to go crazy if um, if you don't have the budget for it, and you you know you want it. It really should just be about celebrating with the, the people close to the bride. And um, it really, I think, it's important to for the any bridesmaids who are um, planning the hens. And um, one of the pieces of advice I've given in the book is really just to to know your bride and know what she she wants and what she will enjoy. There's um, you know, no point in getting too invested in a type of celebration that's just not her thing at all. And you also have to be aware of the group of hens because they can be a very diverse group depending on how many she wants to involve and whether the, the mums and aunts and yeah. um so on are involved and, and work colleagues or whether it's, you know, more of a smaller group of, of just her own peers. Um you know, it's um it, and it's you know how well they all know each other and so on. So you know, one bride might love another bride with hate, and uh, it's um, really a case of of doing what what people will enjoy. And of course, you can have more than one official hen party if you want to do something with, as you say, the bride's mother, the mother-in-law, the aunts, the uncles, or the the aunts more than the uncles. You know, and like an afternoon tea can be done for them separately too. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. can be a way to keep everybody happy is is to have more than one and yeah, something like an afternoon tea or maybe a, a spa day um in the lead up to the to the wedding so everyone's all relaxed and, and beautiful for for the big day, um and uh, you know, have your have your wild night out separately. Um so uh yeah, that can be a really good way around it if you don't really want your um future mother in law to be watching you knocking back the shots and all the rest <laughs> of it. What are the costs involved in being a bridesmaid? Obviously the the dress is covered. Are all the accessories covered? Um, it really depends. You know, it's um it can be one of those things where it can be maybe a bit of negotiation with the bride. Um sometimes the bride might want very very specific things and um you know it has to be this exact pair of shoes and if that's the case then really that the bride should be covering it with bride and groom but um sometimes their brides can be way more laid back than that and just say oh you know a pair of silver sandals is grand and then that way you you know you can buy something that you'll wear again or you might even have something already and uh, um so on um but uh, yeah i always think that um if you are wearing the the dress from hell then at least you haven't had to pay for it yourself unlike the poor bridesmaids in, in the states where the tradition is the bridesmaid pays so it's a much more dubious honour to be asked Yeah it's that that's I, I didn't realise that until a few years ago and then and the bride picks the dress and then you end up paying for a dress that you may hate Exactly and that you'd be just only too glad to stuff into the back of your wardrobe and never see again afterwards so, yeah. On the big day itself then um, firstly make sure everything fits isn't that a good well before the day Yes, definitely. You don't want to be stuck with a situation where you can't get the zip up on the on the morning of the wedding. So yeah, try it all on and um, wear the shoes around the house to to break them in, and um, yeah, just make sure everything is ready. And uh, you know, it's on the morning of the wedding. It's all about the bride and um, getting her ready. So you don't want to be um, spending too much time on on yourself, really. You know, so get your own. Um, preparations on early in the day and um, be ready to help her because uh, when the photographer turns up you want all those nice um, getting ready shots and uh, you know you don't want your um, makeup half done or anything like that at that stage So uh, Because that has happened that a bridesmaid has put on weight in between 
selecting of the dress and then coming to the big day and suddenly yes yeah. that can happen or, or you know optimistically buying a dress in, in a size too small in the hope that um, is that a no-no the, uh, oh yeah I would definitely advise against that it's just putting too much stress on, on yourself really um, you know a dress can always be taken in near the time if you if you do lose weight but um, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't recommend being um, too um, making things too difficult for yourself by buying a, a size smaller than what you really know you need yeah, my sister-in-law got married a few years ago and she had one of those dresses, you know, the tiny little buttons running, about 50 of them running down the back of the dress. Oh, right. And my job was to close the back, to, to <laughs> hook, the, hook the little thing over yeah. the little buttons. And it was unbelievable because it was the, the little hook thing was so tight and I couldn't get it over. And my God, I'll never forget it. It must have taken 20 minutes. And I just got to sort of two or three from the bottom when I realised we had done it wrong. I'd missed the top one. Oh, so no. we had to open the whole lot again and do it all over again. So anyway, the second time on, it wasn't too bad because the material had loosened up uh, slightly. <laughs> and she had bought her dress in, she lives in Australia. She had brought her dress back from Australia with her. When she got back to Australia, there was a message on her answering machine at home to say, hi, it's the bridal shop. You forgot the hook that you need to close your wedding dress. Oh, no. There was a hook to go with. Oh my goodness. Ah, so I, that's my tip to anyone who has those. Make sure you get the hook for closing those, oh, uh, those dresses. Know, yeah. OK, uh, keeping the bride calm on, on the day, um, both in the morning, in the preparation, that's important. That's a big role for the bridesmaid. Definitely. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that a, a bride will, will have chosen you to be her bridesmaid because she knows that um, you'll you'll be there for her on the day and that you will just help her to feel more calm and relaxed about the whole thing. So, um, yeah, you know, if there's any minor problems that you can sort out without even letting the bride be aware, be aware of them, it's the best thing, you know, go off and talk to her mum instead or um, go and sort it out directly with the the hotel or the church or whatever the issue might be and um, just um, keep keep the bride protected from it as much as possible and um, yeah, just keep continually reassuring her really that, you know, she's gorgeous and everything is going to be lovely and everyone's there to celebrate with her and it's um, such a special day and, uh, you know, the day just flies by, especially especially for the bride and groom. I think they'll just find that, um, you know, everything goes in a bit of a whirlwind but um, just being there to be that, that calm, reassuring presence that she needs. Yeah, and break in the shoes so that you're not you're not in agony uh, for the day, and then constantly be on call then throughout the day for the bride. You're her, you're at her beck and call. You are really, um, and um, it's um, you know it might be a case of of helping her to get the veil off before the the dancing or the dinner, or it might be um, just keeping an eye on her that she's got a drink um, and that she is because uh, you know you can be just going from one table to another and. Um, uh, you might just get uh, forgotten about and end up getting dehydrated or something like that. So just all those little things um, that will mean so much to the bride on the day. Is it common for a bridesmaid to make a speech, Natasha? Yes, and it's definitely becoming more common in in recent years. And I think it's, um, you know, just a a sign of the times, really, that um, the women aren't willing to sit back anymore and let the men do all the talking and um, about time too. So, um, yes, it is becoming more common now. It doesn't tend to be quite as long or as elaborate as the the best man speech. And um, some people might say that's a good thing. (laughs) We don't really need uh, four or five speeches like that. But, um, you know, it often might just be um, just a a few short words about um, how much the, the bride means to you and you know how special it is to be part of her big day yeah. some bridesmaids might you know read a poem or um, they might read like write a letter that's about their the memories of their friendship um, 
and uh, um, one of the bridesmaids that I talked to um, doing the research for the book um, told me that um, she'd written a, a letter about um, you know all their times together, and then she gave it to the brides afterwards as a souvenir of the of the big day. So something like that can that's be really lovely. special. And actually, that's one of the tips you give in the book that I thought was really sweet to collect souvenirs from the day for the bride, because obviously on the day, as you say, the day goes in the blink of an eye. But to pick up some little souvenirs from the day. Yeah, so all the little things from the the hotel, um, from the the reception, like maybe you know the table um, decorations or place names or little things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, flower that can be pressed. Um, because yeah, the bride won't think of it on the day, and it'll mean so much to her afterwards to have it. Okay, and this isn't uh, your first book. You had uh, a bride survival guide. Did, I did. I, did you base yes. did you base that on your own wedding experience? Was it? I did. So um, I found when I was um, planning my own wedding that um, there was uh, nothing like that out there that was written um, for Irish brides because uh, you know everything seems to be British or American, and you know weddings are just a bit different here. So uh, I, um, you know, once I after the wedding and everything calmed down a bit, I said, "Right, I'm going to write this book that I w- wish I'd have been able to read myself." Okay. So um, uh, yeah, so this was a, a follow on to that then, really. Um, um, after um, having done the bridesmaids thing as well and um, um, talk, talking to different bridesmaids about their experience. So, uh, yeah, just um, want to pass on whatever tips I can to people. Well done, through. well done. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrific little book. And you're obviously at that stage where you're going to a lot of weddings. You're at that uh, age, are you? Yes, yeah. um, probably slightly slightly beyond it now. Are you? I, I, yeah. I am still going to a few years, but not as much as my younger siblings are. So, uh, uh, yeah. it's, it's, Isn't it nuts? I was, I was talking to uh, one of my young nieces who had, I think, was it 13 weddings last year? Wow. Ah, yeah. it's just crazy. And hen parties to go with it. She spent her, her entire summer either going to or from a hen or a wedding. It was, it was nuts. All right, listen, it's a wonderful book. We wish you luck with it, Natasha. And thanks a million for so joining us on the programme. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. And Natasha McAvard back award sorry who and the book is called The Irish Bridesmaid's Guide and it is published by O'Brien Press and from the day to the hen to the big day. This is the Court Today replay on C103. A €1 million euro plan has been put in place for the conversion of one of Mitchellstown's most iconic buildings and turn it into an arts and heritage space unlike any other in Cork County. Joining me with details is the chairman of the newly established Brigown Arts and Heritage Project and that is uh, Bill Power, no stranger uh, to this programme. Good morning to you, Bill. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, Bill, I have to say this is an ambitious project. Now, the building is St George's Church. Tell me firstly about the history of this building. Well, OK, it's a building that's 220 years old. Um, it was built around 1801 um, and then had various refurbishments. It was enlarged in 1830 and the, lar- the last major work done on the church was in the 1880s when it was completely remodified and tightened and given a very sort of a gothic look. Um, the building itself has was in use until three years ago. Um, the Church of Ireland congregation had been looking after it very well, but obviously the, the congregation was falling. And Mitchellstown has been in the very unique position that there's also a Church of Ireland chapel in Kingston Cottage. So when the parishioners decided to close St. George's... They, they had, had somewhere else to go, yeah. The other, literally the other end of the street, they had a, a, they had a lovely little chapel down there and that's where the services are now held. 
So it's only three years vacant. What what condition is it in? Um, it has problems like any old building. It needs a new roof. The front section of the building, which would include the steeple and an old schoolroom, that's completely riddled with wet and dry rot. So that has to be completely refurbished. And in fact, we reckon that a significant part of the refurbishment and restoration will go into the cost of replacing the roof and all the work that has to be done in the area of the steeple. So that's going, between the two of those, um, it's probably going to take at least three quarters of the total expense in doing the building. Outline your vision for the project, Bill. Our vision basically is that it, 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 it's sometimes complicated and sometimes simple. There is no building like this in, in Mitchellstown. Um, it's one of the finest buildings we've left. So we have a number of simple objectives. One is to restore and refurbish the building and secure it for the next 50 to 100 years. So the quality of work we're going to do is going to be of a very high spec. It's going to meet all the requirements in terms of protective structure and so forth. Um, we're also looking at the, the whole concept, and it, it's a little bit tricky, but we're looking at the whole concept of using green energy to power and heat the building. Heating is going to be a big cost, I reckon. But then, outside of, of those practicalities, the longer-term issue really then becomes, what do we do with the building? So the the plan with that really is that it becomes available for anything involving the arts and heritage. It can also be used for things like family occasions. It can be used for things like conferencing. Um, we have an ambition that someday down the road, we'll be looking at the idea of having concerts in there broadcast by people like RT, something like you see from the, the church down in Dingle. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we're, and of course the acoustics thing. inside in an old church lends itself beautifully well, for any any kind of concerts. And and what you would have yeah. spaces for art exhibitions. I mean, you've, you've got one of your other passions is photography, for example. Yeah. Would you see exhibitions going on there? Absolutely. It's going to become an exhibition space for North Cork. Um, we have been working very much in tandem with Cork County Council. James Fogarty is, is the divisional manager here and he's He's been on board with us from from a very early stage. Um, they basically see this tying in as part of, if you like, the overall work that's going on in relation to Mallow Castle, um, Mallow Town Park, Ansgrove Gardens, Donrell Park. We'll become the sort of Mitchellstown corner of what's happening in those areas. And, and you break down the costs. I mean, I, I said at the outset, a million euro. You, you work in what, three quarters is, is restoration, between the roof well, and restoration? Yeah, at the moment, we're, we know we're looking at a bill straight at the moment of about a quarter of a million for a new roof. Okay. The roof isn't fit for purpose anymore. In fact, it, last weekend, slates came off the roof again. Yeah. Um, and that's a kind of a common occurrence down winter time there. Um, we reckon that the steeple area and what's to be done there in terms of the steeple itself requiring restoration work, um, that is probably going to be about a quarter of a million as well. And we'll quite easily do that. The, the refitting of the building in terms of lighting, heating, um, um, the, what I'm talking about in terms of green energy, converting rooms there into a suitable meeting space, all that will take us up close to the one billion mark. And we know as well in a building like that that it's like a Pandora's box. 
once you kind of open it, you yeah. just don't know what yeah. you're getting into. And, and, and an old building, as soon as soon as you start, so you're going to have to have contingencies and all of that, and hopefully there won't be any overruns or not much overruns uh, on the scale of the National oh, yeah. Children's Hospital. Um, yeah. Now well, you we'll try not to be as bad as that. Well, right? uh, well, we would very much appreciate that. Will you be able to get much of it or any of it through grants? Well, what we're hoping is, for example, we have some grant applications done in already. Um, we're hoping that 50% of what we need will come through grant aid, but that still leaves 50% or so for us to have to raise, and that, that's going to be the real fun part. Look, in, in Mitchellstown, and anybody from Mitchellstown will tell you this, everybody here talks about what happened in the presentation conference in terms of the vandalism that's gone on there in the last decade. The building is destroyed, utterly destroyed. People talk about things like the loss of Mitchellstown Castle, the loss of the old Catholic Church, and what we're saying to them is, look, this is a group that's prepared to take this on, put our, our time and energy on the line to save this building from Mitchellstown and make something of it that people will appreciate. Now, we have to do that in, in a, a few ways. One of them is we have to have respect and regard for the fact that for 220 years this has been a church and we are just really passing it on to the next generation. Mm. You know, it's, it's, in that sense it's iconic. Most people in Mitchellstown, I suspect, have never been inside the door of the church, which, yeah. considering its location and how central in the town, um, it, it, people don't know the quality of what's in there and the beauty of what's in there. So, is there a lot? Is there a lot of excitement locally since you've gone public with your story? Well, well it, we've certainly got a very positive reaction to it, um, and in fact, we've had a few donations without even looking for them. And, uh-huh. and done more money we need it. Um, but, you know, the, the reaction has been positive. People, I think, can see what we're trying to do there. They can see what we've lost in the town. Um, and I suppose you either have to say, well, look, let's have another building falling down with the roof caving in and the steeple becoming dangerous and a high mech moving in, or let's get in there before it gets to that stage. Yeah, and everybody moaning and groaning and saying, isn't it awful, oh, it's, yeah. it's gone. And you're right, we, we have a future generation that will look back and will be so thankful that we, we've left something like this behind. Well, to be honest, we look very much when we're looking at this. Um, we could have, because it's, it's been... The, the patron of this is Mitchellstown Heritage Society, but it won't actually be running the building. It won't own the building. It's this, this new company, Pregon Arts and Heritage Project, will be the owners. It's a not-profit company, which means nobody actually running it are there to make money out of it. We're there to save it for the town. We're there to make the best of it we can. And if you look at the future of the building, it has to be with younger people coming in making use of it. Mm. It isn't about the old fogies and about the Archer Heritage's grand introduction is lovely up there inside the building. You won't go back a second time to look at a museum, and this is really very interesting. What we're planning is to put things in there that will make it interesting that they change, like exhibitions, like, like concert-type events, that people will want to go back and say, I was up there last month and I saw such and such, and I heard they have another exhibition on, but I must go up and have a look at that. Because it's only through bringing people in the door and making the building relevant to the entire town and beyond that it can survive into the future. That's the vision we have for it. Now, we are all well aware that we're, we're kind of deft to be getting involved in something like this, but if we don't do it, who's going to do yeah, it? No, you're not daft. You're not daft at all. No. You really are not. And you hope to restore the organ? There's a very old <coughs> organ in that church. Yeah, the the organ is, is reputed to be one of the oldest in the country, and it's certainly one of well, the oldest in County Cork. 
quite a beautiful um, instrument. Um, it's, it's still in very good condition considering its age. Um, now, we, one of the things, for example, that we're, we're hoping is that down the road that we'll be able to do organ concerts in there as well, or at least performances that will focus on the organ. Yeah, concert. using the organ, yeah. yeah. And um, and the Church of Ireland, are they gifting the church to this project? No, for, for, for sort of technical, re- legal reasons, we have to buy the church from them. No, it's not a vast sum or anything like okay. that. But we have to, to buy the church. This is to deal, this is to cover the legal side of it, yeah. Yeah, charity yeah. acts and various things like that. Um, these buildings nowadays are not, we're paying the valuation price on it, but these buildings are not valued at millions of euros. Yeah, and yeah not like so. ordinary, but yeah, yeah. So, um, Bernard in the city said, uh, says, please say well done to that gentleman and the group that he is uh, fronting. This sounds like a wonderful, wonderful plan. Uh, we need more heritage projects like this. Future generations will bemoan the fact that we are leaving nothing behind. May I wish them uh, luck with it. Uh, and someone else wants to know, are you going to be holding fundraising events? We have to. <laughs> yeah, you have no choice. <laughs> we have no options on it. Um, look, where we are at the moment is that um, uh, we've received... The, the legal documents to legally transfer the building over. Um, we're, we're in that process now. Um, and once we have the building, obviously the first priority these days has to be insurance and, and security and safety. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, the usual. Um, and believe me, the, the insurance bill is astronomical. Um, it's You'd be shocked if I gave it the figure. That's our starting point because we're taking over what is considered an empty, disused building and... Um, We've been assured that the, the insurance costs will come down dramatically within the next 12 months because we will then have the building in use. But yeah, in the meantime, yeah. you know, we've, we've to do these things. Um, and really what we want to start doing, we have a plan to get one um, one room in the building as it is fully refurbished in a relatively short time. We, If we get the, the grants that we are looking for at the moment from Cork County Council, it means we can start work in the front part of the building and just to kind of reassure everybody everything we are doing will be in accordance with um, planning regulations, will be in accordance with heritage guidelines in terms of you know looking after the right things in the building. If changes are made that, that's being done in, in, in um, cooperation with and permission from the County Council and then we also have to deal with um, a whole range of sort of other things. How do we engage and involve people like the Arts Council, the Heritage Council? It just has to be done. Yeah. You know. Um, okay. Well, no. Well, no better, Bukali. Listen, we wish you luck. We will talk with you okay. again. Um, and sure. uh, best of luck to everybody uh, involved. But thanks for joining us today, well, Bill. Well, Patricia, one of these days we'll have you over doing a live broadcast. Well, we would. We would stuff. look forward to it. Thank <laughs> okay, you for yeah. that. God Thank bless. Patricia. Take care. Bye bye. Bill Power there. Uh, wearing yet another hat this time as chairman of the newly established Begown Arts and Heritage Project. We need to take a break. News at twelve midday on the way. Uh, we have gardening questions. Get them in please for Peter uh, one of the many items we'll cover in the next hour 1850 Hi Martina here join me every weekday from 4 to 7 for Drive Time where I'll keep you up to date on all the latest traffic information we'll spread some positivity with our feel good story and song of the day and of course we'll be serving up a generous portion of Cork's greatest hits C103 You're listening to Cork Today on Replay Phone and text lines are currently closed Martin in Mitchellstown uh, was listened, listened with very keen interest to Bill Power 
Talk about the plans for St George's uh, Church and the reason Martin has a very keen interest. He looked after the church for 27 years of which he played the organ in that church for 15 of those years he says only this morning he was playing the organ at the Kingston College Chapel where the Church of Ireland congregation moved to uh, three years ago he said the organ in St George's dates back to 1775 there's a similar organ in Castletown Roach and Martin remembers a few years ago a key went wrong and the keys in this particular organ were made from sticks and it was the stick inside in the organ that was worn down so one of the keys then wasn't working he said they simply put in a piece of sycamore into it and the key worked perfectly isn't that such a such a simple solution and it is part of the plan listening to Bill earlier say it is part of the plan that they are going to they're hoping to restore the organ which would be terrific and Joan Infermoy says she was delighted to hear Bill Powell on the programme this morning and the plans for that church in Mitchellstown she said I really miss the Adoration Chapel in Fermoy as our beautiful altar was removed and they've modernised it and it really is missed by so many I feel they're modernising too many of our beautiful uh, churches 1850 Other issues that people are talking to us about this morning, street drinking, which we spoke about earlier. Uh, Christopher Newell was on to say the drink problem is everywhere. The judiciary should bring in a law that people are responsible for their own actions. Well, I don't know if you need to bring a law. I think people are responsible for their, their own actions. That's if you break the law, you're responsible for your own actions. He would like to close off off licenses. He would like stronger penalties for those who are arrested on the street for this kind of behaviour. He said a lot of the street drinking brings on violence and we end up with stabbings. It's dangerous. They talk about health and safety but how safe do many people feel on our streets particularly because of this drinking Colm and Fomoy where are these people getting the money to buy the drink the ones that are drinking on the streets every day I don't know many people that will be able to go out and buy drink and just walk around the streets uh, drinking it. Why? Because most of us are out of work, says Colm. We wouldn't be in a position to uh, do it. And some wonderful bridesmaid stories coming in following our chat with Natasha about her new book. Amanda says, on the day of her best friend's wedding, they were about to leave her home place to go to the local church. <laughs> the wedding car wouldn't start. Now he said, She said the driver tried everything. Everybody else had left the house so all that was left was Amanda who was the chief bridesmaid or she said maid of honour as it was called in those days. There was two other bridesmaids. There was the bride and the bride's uh, father. Driver and the father tried everything they could to get this darn car to start but it wouldn't. Now there was a second car which was to take the bridesmaids. They, They tried to see could they all wedge into that car but they couldn't. They did start ringing. Nobody was answering at their phones. The bride was starting to get upset now because she really loved the idea of going to the church in this vintage car. And she had done what a lot of brides had done and put a lot of work and a lot of effort into selecting this car. This was the car of her dreams and the one she wanted to turn up in the church in. Now, they did have the option of doing two runs, but they're thinking, no, we can't have that working. So... And now I take it it was Amanda came up with the brainwave that they'd ring a mechanic. There was a local mechanic in the area. The problem was the local mechanic was an old boyfriend of the bride's. After a bit of persuading, they rang 
the ex-boyfriend and in fairness to him he came out and he sorted out the car it turned out not to be a big problem in the end and he was able to fix it and they got to the church to a panicked groom because they were about 40 minutes late but the bride was happy because she got to the car in her dream she got to the church in her dream vintage car and the ex-boyfriend helped out well done Maria in East Cork says as we were leaving the bride's house her dress rubbed up against a patio door now she said there was either dirt on the door or oil but it left a black mark on the dress so you can imagine the tears just as they're about to head out to the church Uh, Maria says I got the brainwave of using vanish on the dress so we put the vanish on a bit of scrubbing and rubbing some water the mark came out she said I always swore by vanish and they her friends those in the bridal party used to always mock Maria because Maria's solution to everything was use the vanish vanish she said they were glad of me that day well I was able to get the mark off the bride's dress uh, well done uh, Maria and Susan says I got married two years ago I let my bridesmaids choose their own dress all my instruction was please don't be too wild but they were happy to do that, pick their own, own dress. Susan wonders, is it common? As I know, when I was a bridesmaid, it was always tough to get a dress that would fit, particularly if all bridesmaids were different sizes. And it's not, you'll get the dresses to fit, but it's will the dresses suit all the different size and shapes of bridesmaids. And I don't know how many brides, is that a consideration? Do you try and go for everyone who's a size 10 or a size 12 or does size not come into it at all? And if, if and if you are choosing people because you want them as your bridesmaids, then you're really not looking at what their dress size is. But that does bring in the problem then of getting a, a dress style that will suit everyone. Well, uh, Susan, as to what you did was a terrific idea. Let them buy their own uh, dresses in the bridesmaids book that um, we reviewed this morning. That is one of the suggestions that you do allow bridesmaids to come up with their own style. Actually, one of the bridesmaids quoted in it, and I thought this was a great idea. They, she had four or five bridesmaids different shapes and different sizes couldn't come up with a dress that everybody liked she knew the colour scheme so what she did was she went out and she bought material and she gave each of the material and said there you go this is the brief this is the material that I want you to walk down the aisle with as my bridesmaids what style you have you can do what you like with and she actually said it became a talking point on the, on the day because everybody went for a different style you know, one had a halter neck one had an off shoulder dress one had cap sleeves and they went for different lengths and everything and uh, she said look it looked lovely but it was all done with the very same materials and that's a good idea for anyone who's having problems at the moment we're trying to select a bridesmaid dress for this summer and James and Cloyne is looking for listeners advice please and views on this a problem he has, he thinks is a problem with the RSA. Now, he's already been on to the RSA. They couldn't give him a definitive answer on this. It's to do with NCTs, but they're checking it out for him. OK, James in Cloyne runs a garage and he will, he ta- and he regularly takes cars to, for NCT, for people. You know, somebody's got an NCT, they're at work, can't get the day off. So James offers this service through the garage where I'm assuming he checks the car first so he knows it's going to pass the NCT and then he'll drive, he'll bring the car to the NCT and you are allowed to do that. The owner doesn't have to be the person bringing the car to the NCT. Now he said for him to do it, it's fine and he's covered and he's under his own garage insurance so that's not a problem. However, he's just foreseen what he thinks could be a problem. He's, he says, what if somebody comes in on the 20th of January and their NCT is out on the 21st of January but their test isn't until the 3rd of February. Now, the person has a letter stating that they have their NCT test coming up and therefore they're covered to drive their car to the NCT centre. 
even though the NCT cert is out of date, but they do have a letter of appointment. If they don't have a valid NCT, you can be fined or receive penalty points. So how does it work if you're going for your test? What about those who fail the NCT but then drive away? What are the laws around this as there are so many changes to the law? Well, if there's a major fail, you're not allowed to drive it from the NCT. You have to, you have to get it collected and taken away. I know that for sure. I think if it's a minor fail, you're allowed to go away and sort it and come back and get it retested or just get a visual test on it. But I'm 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 a bit confused now when I read down through. I think what your question is: if there isn't a valid NCT, and the person who owns the car has a letter saying that their NCT is coming up, then they're okay to drive. But your question is: are you? Where do you stand as the garage person who's bringing the car to the NCT? Am I right? I think I think that's what your question is. 1850-333-103. If anybody knows, he is on to the RSA. Um, they couldn't uh, they couldn't give him a straight answer, so they're looking into it at the moment. But if anybody else, this has come up for anybody else and you know the answer, let us know, please, so we can pass it on to James in a cloin. Text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Supporting businesses, supporting communities, serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. The Blood Transfusion Service, they're holding a donor clinic that's in Skullmuragon Small, and it is on today between 5pm and 8.30. Shandon Area History Group are inviting people to a talk entitled Jailbreak. It's on tonight, half past seven in Kofa House in Church Street near Shandon. John Mulcahy will speak about Donica McNeilis and one of the most famous escapes from the old Cork County Jail. Sarsfield's Hurling Club in Riverstick, they're holding an Irish night in the Pavilion. That's on tonight, half past eight. All are welcome, including musicians. And the Cork ETB School of Music, they're holding their South Cork Cluster Concert. That's on six o'clock this evening in the Methodist Church in uh, Kinsale. And dancing to Finbar Dennehy in Kilbritton Hall for their social dance with tea and cakes on Friday night, half past nine. Proceeds going towards the upkeep of the hall. And the 98th anniversary of the Clonmult ambush will be commemorated at the ambush site next Sunday at half past 12. And a memorial mass will then take place in St. Lawrence's Church before that at 11am. Four historic statues stolen from an Irish castle have been recovered after they were found abandoned in a County Clare field. The statues, two of Royal Eagles and one each of Oliver Cromwell and William of Orange, they were stolen from Milltown Castle, which is outside Charleville. Joining me, a local Charleville-based councillor, Ian Doyle, who also happens to be a member of the Charleville Heritage uh, Association, who were obviously delighted uh, to, with the, to have heard about the recovery of these stolen statues. Uh, good afternoon to you, Ian. Afternoon, um, how are you? Uh, I'm very well and you're welcome. I suppose take us Thank back you. and remind us, it was, it was back in 2011. Remind yeah. us of how and when the statues were stolen. Yeah, it's just extraordinary, Patricia. Back in 2011, uh, the two eagles on top of the pillars going into Milton Castle, and as you're quite right, is that the Willem of Orange statue and Oliver Cromwell, which was in the gate lodge there, were taken one night uh, out of the blue, really, to be honest with you. And I suppose it was just the magnitude of the robbery, because the weight of these things was it was incredible, and why anyone would want them, number two, was, was incredible, and they just disappeared, really, and... Uh, as you quite rightly said, uh, over the other day, a passerby, 
I think they were actually out foot beagling in the, in the Clare Hills, came across the statues in this disused farm building of a, of a disused farmhouse. So, uh, I noticed again, they were out of place. I, know, I noticed they were out of place. They, they were actually thrown in the ground. There was nettles thrown up to them. Yeah, they reported to the local guardie there and the station, and the guardie got on to Detective Liam Ruttle here in, in Charlotte, and Charlotte guardie went down and recovered them. And wh- where exactly is Milton Castle? Milton Castle is in Killary. It's, it's, you know, if you go past Charleville, out in Newton, it's in, uh, beyond the Gulf Club there and straight on, you know, it's, it's, it's in the parish of Ballyhay, actually. But it, it, it straddles uh, Newtown, Charleville and Ballyhay. Now, the old castle dates back to before the 17th century. It was in an old Fitzgerald uh, settlement. Yeah. And then it was uh, around the 1780s, 1800s, Milton Castle House was built by the Bruce family, which were um, a merchant banking family here in Charleville. And actually, their vault is here in the, in the plaza in front of the President Church in front of our library here in Charleville. And uh, at the turn of the century, then the Keynes uh, acquired it, and uh, they've been in it ever since. Okay, and yeah. they're they're the current owners, and they and were the, the ones. Owners, yeah, they yeah, were the yeah. ones who would have got up that morning uh, oh, back yeah. in 2011 and discovered they're they're gone. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah, and unfortunately, the two boys. Now we grew up. I mean, we grew up looking at those eagles. I mean, they were yeah. fascinating to see them there. And uh, unfortunately, the two keen men I have since passed deceased, and I'd say were very upset when they were taken. I mean, it was just. Okay, we've lost. Can we get uh, the line? Just went there. We'll see if we can get back. Um, Ian Doyle, and, and while I'm waiting for Ian Pat says, Patricia, do you know if the 23% hike in health supplements applies to pharmacies or is it just health food shops as well? I'm so cross as I rely a lot on fish oils, etc. for my health. Are politicians ignoring this? Thanking you, says Pat. This is the issue we've discussed many times with Annalise Trussell, our nutritional uh, therapist. And at the moment, there is zero, weight, zero rate for VAT for all the health supplements. And Pat is right for fish oils as well and it goes to 23% and unfortunately Pat I have bad news for you it's, it's across no matter where you buy your um, fish oils that 23% comes in on I don't know if it's the beginning of March or the end of March is it the 1st of March I'll get John Paul to check that there's still that petition ongoing and people are still fighting it because all of the supplements and vitamins and your fish oils will go up uh, 23% hike on uh, the price. Uh, 1850-333-103. Ian Doyle is back with me and what happened there? Um, how are you, Ian? Sorry, Patricia. Yeah, the, the line just... Yeah. Okay, and you... Okay, t- talk to me about the history then behind the statues. They've been there, you reckon? They've been there since the early... I mean, the Keynes, back in 1780 to 1800s, uh, the, the, the Bruce family built that house, you know, and and the and the the lodge was part of the old Milton Castle, so that they've been, been there since then at at the very earliest, at the very least, you know. Yeah, huge and, amount uh, of work in in stealing these items. Oh, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, the, the the weight of these things it certainly needed a lorry and grab and heist, and uh, it would have taken. You know, I reckon it would have taken a considerable amount of time as well to do it. You know. But a quiet, a quiet enough area. They were quiet enough area. Yeah, they, they, they had. So they, they knew, they knew where they were. They knew what they were doing. This was, this was well planned. What do you believe? Did they hope to sell it on? Look, everyone has suspicions, but whether they were, whether they were taken to order and it didn't work out or something like that, but where they were abandoned seemed ridiculous. You know, they were just abandoned in an old farmyard. And again, I saw a video from Detective Ruttle of the passage going into that farmyard and I'd say somebody hadn't been in there for the last four or five years you know so they were just abandoned when when, when whatever they were 
future was supposed to be didn't work out, you know. And of course, the thieves were afraid it would be traced uh, back yeah. to them if yeah, they, if yeah, they, yeah, if they. Yeah, yeah. Have yeah. you, have that's you seen them? Are they what condition ah, yeah, are they in? Have, yeah, they're recovered. Yeah, they're recovered, and they're they're they, they need cleaning up and things like that. But they're in perfect order, and and they're back as as not as damaged. Yeah, but not damaged. No, not damaged. No, they're limestone. Yeah. You know, so they 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 just need a bit of cleaning up. And I suppose, you know, Patricia, because I just, you know, it's just, yet again, this is my, as you were aware, my truck incident, but Charvel Gardaí and the Gardaí in general, this is, you know, a tremendous result for them as well. There's no question about it. I mean, it's, it's good to see things like that being recovered. Yeah, know? it's great. Yeah. It's great. Fantastic, yeah. Do you know now what is the long-term plan? I would, like I said, will be given back to the family whether they will put them back up or not now is, is I suppose, another issue, but I'm sure they will. You know, yeah. yeah, and yeah. that's, but yeah. that's what you would like to see happen. Oh, it would be lovely. It would be fantastic, yeah. It would be fantastic, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Listen, you know, just, just, yeah. Can I just? Yeah. Just, I, I was listening to you in the Mitchellstown and the church. You know, St George's. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's fantastic because years ago, again, for the late Hedda Reardon convinced Cork County Council to buy the old disused Protestant church here in our main street. Yeah. And it's one of the most iconic libraries in Cork County now. You know, as a result, so it's great to see these churches being being. Yeah, I, I remember a number of years ago we did an outside broadcast, from, and I was just blown away by by that building. It's, it's, it's yeah, and there, and, know, and the late Ted O'Riordan, what a great man! The late Ted O'Riordan single-handedly managed to, to do that. You know, there's no question about it. Yeah, but no, it's no, the no. point. It's the point that Bill Powers is making. Like we we have to do it just so we can yes, pass it yes, on to future yes, generations. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And like it's like Milton Castle. I mean, they're part of a different generation, but they need to be preserved. Yeah, no they do indeed. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. well, it's a, bit, it's a good news story, thank God. All right. Story, yeah. Thanks for that, Ian. Thank Thanks for joining us. That is uh, Councillor Ian Doyle joining us from Charleville on the good news that they, and hopefully they'll get be, they'll be put back up in Milton Castle where they rightfully belong, the two eagles and the two heads, William of Orange and uh, Oliver Cromwell. Okay, some of your thoughts coming into us on this is on the Health Minister Simon Harris. Darian Kinsale so feels that Simon Harris should be removed from his post. If he cannot deliver, he needs to move aside. Derry feels that the Fianna Fáil party should look for Simon Harris to be removed. And he also ponders what do they th- what do they think in Brussels? about allowing the National Children's Hospital to go so far over budget. Do Brussels have a view? I don't know if they do or they don't or do they know about it at all? James Imbrury was listening to Minister Simon Harris apologising over the serious overruns. He thought it was nauseating. He said, I'm involved in building and you go by square metres. You would also get three or four tenders and you would look to other countries and see how much a similar building would cost in a different jurisdiction. But that doesn't appear to have happened. We seem to have a culture here on the way we carry out projects and it's been going on for years. We continue to have overruns for various projects in this country. A number of years ago, James was watching a programme on RTE and they showed that Ireland ran 80% over on various projects, major capital projects. One of them he cited was the Porch Tunnel. He feels Simon Harris is too young to handle all of this, uh, especially bearing in mind his wife has just had a baby. He's got too much going on in uh, his uh, life. Well, that's the, the point of the overruns. Leo Varadkar, he came out, was you know quite forceful in his views yesterday and they're calling it low-balling. This where people put in a bid for state work and they know it is below the ball price they go low ball I'm assuming that's where the low balling uh, comes from he says that that has to stop Uh, to the point he says that quite frankly there are some contractors 
who should never be hired for another major project again. That's quite forceful, a statement. And he also wants the practice of committing to major projects before they... Committing to major projects uh, before they clarify the final costs. He says that's then. So they are trying to do something. And, and when you talk about project overruns, in the papers today, I found an article which made me smile. The refurbishment of Leinster House is the latest government project to run over budget. It The costs are expected to rise above the estimated figure of €12 million. Euro. There are €15 million. Euro. That's the estimated costs, but they're now Boxer Moran. He's the junior minister with responsibility for the Office of Public Works. He's come out and said he can't give the government an official figure yet on the final cost, but he's, he's able to say it is going to be more than the initial estimate and the initial estimate was fifteen million euro. And Boxer Morn, or Minister Morn, also said, was talking yesterday about the fact that his department has been asked to find three million euro to reallocate to the National Children's Hospital. All of the departments have been given different sums to come up with and the Office of Public Works have been told to come up with three million. Minister Morn said that the Leinster House refurbishment will not be affected by that money. That money instead will come from the extra nine million allocated to flood relief measures in this year's budget. He said the three million will be spread out across flood relief schemes and the affected schemes will be delayed by weeks as opposed to months, which isn't going to go down very well, I imagine, uh, for people in the middle of a flood relief work to be told we're delaying your project now because we have to take a slice off it because it has to go to the National Children's Hospital. But he was adamant yesterday that that three million will not come out of the money that has been set aside for Leinster House, the refurbishment of Leinster House, even though that refurbishment project, that's overrun and they're going to need more money for that as well. You just couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up. 1850 John Paul taking your calls. If you have a gardening question please get it in. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. And Peter Dowdle, the Irish gardener, uh, joining us. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. I was, I was, you came, sprang to mind yesterday when I was seeing some, I was watching it on TV. I'm sure I read something online about it and it's on, uh, it's on some of the papers as well, about the pesticide use uh, driving an alarming decline in the world's insects population. They're saying it could have a catastrophic impact on the nature's ecosystem. I mean, alarming things that they're saying in the past 30 years, the total mass of all insects dropped on average by 2.5% a year. And they're saying in 100 years, they could all be gone. It's, it's, this is the, <clears throat> the drum, if you like, that I've been banging for God knows how long. And it's, it's, we have to wake up to the fact that this is, we are witnessing the, the, the greatest, the fastest rate of extinction that we've seen on this planet in 55 million years. It's, it's happening in front of our eyes and we're allowing it. And we have to, all of us, not just politicians and big business, but individuals have to wake up to this and, and do what we can to slow it down and stop it and, and stop, you know, stop, stop getting the plastic packaging and throwing it out, get back to the garden. The answer to everything, Trish, lies in the garden. That, that's where everything survives. All our food, all our medicine comes from the, the six inches of soil that cover the planet and all the insects and animals survive or, or depend on it as well. Um, it, it is happening. I hate to be alarmist, but 
you need to wake up and as the fellow says smell the coffee this is happening I I didn't see that piece on TV but I've heard about it yeah Uh, it was a big it was a big study it's a study coming out from uh, researchers in Sydney and Queensland University but what I thought was really interesting was they looked back they did a review of 76 historic reports of insect decline across the world so they were able to map it year on year on year so they had the evidence there it's yeah. worrying, it's, really it worrying. Is, it's frightening stuff. It is frightening stuff. But this, no, I, I, I was glad to see yesterday. I put it up on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it or not. But um, uh, and it's important to f- if people don't realise the the, the the majority of slug pellets that we sell in Ireland and in the UK at the moment uh, work on the active ingredient metaldehyde, which I probably mentioned to you before, Trish. Yeah. And, uh, metaldehyde is an incredibly toxic substance. It does kill slugs and snails, but it does also kill the predators of slugs and snails, which birds. are birds, yeah. birds and hedgehogs. But metaldehyde will go further. It will kill your domestic pets. If It's toxic to us humans if we eat enough of it. Uh, it's a very, very damaging chemical. Delighted to see in the UK they've banned the use of it from uh, 2020 on. Uh, hopefully, um, the Irish government were still waiting for an answer from them, of course, uh, because they're never leading the way on anything to do with with the sustainability or the, the environment, because it's just not on their agenda. But uh, if people could, could just do one thing after reading about this and watching it on TV, just do one thing. Next time you're going buying slug pellets, have take 20 seconds to look for the active ingredient. If you see something called metaldehyde, leave it behind you. If you care enough, tell the retailer, be it Tesco's or be it the garden centre, why you're leaving it behind you and each, each one of us do this we'll begin to make a small bit of a difference yeah and if all of us uh, that's what that's what it'll take it's everybody doing the small bit you you light the candle rather than curse the darkness you ok let's get get straight in lots of questions in Rita in Dreamer League was on uh, could you ask Peter please about blue orchids are they dyed if they reflower will they remain blue it depends <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, Trish. It depends on the orchid. Uh, I suspect what the, the caller is referring to is um, uh, what they may have bought over Christmas, which is the, the Phalaenopsis or the moth orchid, which has exactly, it has been dyed blue. Um, it's either been dyed through the roots or it's actually been sprayed. But no, once that flowers again, it, it'll come back white. No, it'll still be a beautiful, beautiful white orchid, but, but white. But there are some then, orchid, or, or, orchid wanda is one, which is a purpley blue. It's a really stunning flower, but probably not what they're talking about. It is available in garden centres, but it's probably the, the, the blue, sprayed blue or dyed blue phalaenopsis, which will come back white. Mike in Bantry. Hi, Peter. I planted common privet hedge this morning. Is that good for bees? Yes, very good for pollinators, well actually. Yeah, lovely, lovely white flowers, kind of early summer. Yeah, very good for pollinators. OK, and good to know that he's even thinking about the bees. Uh, well done uh, to you, Mike. Um, Tim in West Cork. Hi, uh, Trish. Question for Peter, please. What is the best way to get rid of moss in a lawn and when is the best time to do it? I just cut the lawn, thanking you from Tim in West Cork. Lots of people are cutting their lawns. Yes, there's... Um the, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long answer to this one, but I'll keep it as brief as I can. And and moss is a constant problem in our in our climate because it's warm and it's damp our climate, and that's what moss likes. Okay, so the the best course of action if you want an annual maintenance program, I would scarify it once a year in the spring, which is like a mechanical rake, Trish, which which pulls out the thatch and physically removes the moss up out of the ground, and then you you collect it. So if you scarify it once a year. You're maintaining conditions which are which is good for good grass growth as opposed to moss growth. By leaving the thatch on the moss and the moss on the soil surface, you're you're creating conditions which is ideal again for the development of more moss. So 
scarify it once a year, I would say. Pre-treat it early in the season with a thing called Lawn Gold Extra. Now, you've heard me go on, going on about Lawn Gold before, and that's because the reason I like it is because it's a real back-to-basics product. It works on... If you if you create the, the, the right pH for grass growth, that's a slightly alkaline pH, well, that's a soil pH that moss can't grow in. So it's quite simple, basic stuff. So uh, the, by using the Lawn Gold Extra, it's high in gypsum, or it's high in calcium, which comes from the gypsum, uh, which creates... Al- creates alkaline conditions which moss can't tolerate. Now you then need to continue with that lawn gold. They have, they have a different one for each season with the different nutrients for the right time of the year. But that will maintain a moss-free lawn uh, by, by, by keeping the pH quite alkaline. That will do it. A lot of traditionally what we use is sulfate of iron, lawn sand, which is also sand with sulfate of iron. And, and a lot of the products contain sulfate of iron. Now sulfate of iron will control moss. It will kill moss. But what it does is, number one, it turns moss black. Uh, so then you're left with black moss. But number two, it's a short-term fix because sulfate of iron has the, the, the other effect of, of acidifying the soil slightly, so making the soil more conducive to moss growth in the longer term. So it, really I'd be looking at the other way around, uh, scarifying it in March, applying the lawn gold and keeping the pH quite alkaline. Stay on lawns, uh, Mike in Fremont. Is it too early to set a lawn? Uh, well, you know, the weather the way it is, it's hard to say. <laughs> like, it's 10 degrees or thereabouts at the moment, so you'd say no. But like the textbook answer is it, it, it is too early, yes. You can do all the soil preparation now for your lawn, raking it to create a fine tilt, removing the stones, all of that. But really, the, the, the answer I should give is you wouldn't set it until March. March, April would be the, the months that I would set it when the temperatures are increasing properly. And you wouldn't say all risk of frost is gone then, but it's certainly less than what it would be now. Aileen in Clonakilty has five orchids in total. She received them all as presents. I don't know if she got them all at the same time or not, but she said the roots are now growing out of the pots. It's almost like the roots are out of control. What do I do with them? Also, could you offer advice on watering, please? As I've been told, you only water them for six weeks out of the year. Is that true? I don't know that I'd agree that that is true, but what I would say is the fact that the roots are, as she, as she describes them quite quite well, out of control, or they look like they're out of control, that's fine. Don't worry about that. Orchids need to be under pressure to flower. So they need to be pot-bound. If you take them out of the pot they're in and do what you think is the right thing by putting them into a nice pot full of rich compost, they'll love it, but they won't flower for another few years because they need to be under pressure and really breaking the pot. Uh, it would actually be cracking the pot before I would look at repotting them and even then just go up maybe half an inch in diameter with, with the new pot. Um, so I probably, if, if she only got them relatively recently, she says, I wouldn't be looking at repotting them for a while yet. Uh, if she wants, send in a picture or put it, send it in to me on Facebook and we'll have a look at it um, to see whether it should be repotted or not. Um, in terms of watering, water them from beneath. In other words, stand them into a bowl of water. I would do it about... <laughs> You, the, the, where the person is going with the six weeks in the year, that's kind of the. the when I'm, one, I'm wondering now, did she mean it's she only waters them every six weeks? Okay, maybe that's what they yeah. meant. Or maybe they maybe they meant just water them when they're flowering, which would be six six to ten weeks in the year, if you like. Okay. I would say stand when they're flowering, stand them in water maybe once a week. Then when they're not flowering in their dormant period, drop it down to once a fortnight or once every three weeks. Question for Peter, please. Is now the time to shift a wild damson slash plum tree? Also, black currants, red currants, strawberries. Can they be moved at this time? You would say normally, yes, 
in February because it's still the dormant time of the year. But again, I'm referring to the fact that the temperatures are about 10 degrees at the moment. Uh, I'd, I'd nearly say no. Like if we go back two weeks ago to when we were covered in a bit of snow and frost, Trish, I would have said that was the perfect time to do it because all these things need to be moved when they're fast asleep, when they're dormant during the winter and they're not even thinking about growing, which normally would bring you up to the end of February. Um, I'm not sure where that answer leaves you because this year is, is, is you know, things are beginning to start growing already. So, you know, the longer you leave it, the less chances you're going to have of success. So if you need to do it, then do it as soon as possible, I would say, is the short answer. And staying on the moving, uh, Bridget, could you ask Peter, please, is it too late to move a rose? I never knew when I purchased the rose that it was a climbing rose and it's now gone on over the place. I want to move it nearer a wall. Uh, I would say the same answer as what I just gave to the last one. In other words, the sooner you do it, the better. Now, by the sound of it, uh, um, it's probably only planted in the last year or so. If, if she didn't realise that it's a climber, now it is a climber, so she wants to move it. So if it's only a year or so on the ground, it should move fairly easily. And don't be scared to cut it back very, very hard. Like, you can cut that back to within a foot of its life um, and, and move it. The rose, I'd be confident enough, would transplant fine at, at the moment, yeah. Pat in Skibbereen wants to buy some rhubarb stools in the spring, but it's the champagne variety. Should he get the reddest stalks possible? Ah, it, it, that doesn't really matter so much, provided he's getting the right variety and the champagne should be readily enough available. Um, it, it shouldn't matter so much because that will be determined by the ground that they're going into in his own garden anyway. So I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Pat, uh, Patrick on Twitter we have out of control hydrangeas so I'm just wondering when and how to cut them right back you can cut them back anytime really before the end of February so you could be doing it now um, if they're out of control as he says they're probably a big established plant so like if something hasn't been pruned let's say in 5 or 10 years or even more uh, you can take out it's what's called restorative pruning you can take out an awful lot of the really heavy wood like the big stems that could be as thick as your arm you could I wouldn't remove all of them in one in one go it'd be too big a shock to the plant but you could remove let's say half of the, the, the big heavy branches down to nearly ground level concentrating on what's left then which would be maybe your finger thickness uh, and that's when we get to the you can cut them back as hard as you want but that's when we get to that magic number Trish and that's the seven nodes so counting from the soil up if you look at the stems they're they're dormant at this time of the year there won't be any leaves but you'll see the, the, the dormant leaf buds on the stem so counting from the ground up make sure you leave seven leaf buds or more on each stem don't go back any further if you do go back any further and cut to the ground level you won't damage the plant but you will You'll have no flowers, flowers yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then they'll, they'll come back in a few years' time. Okay, I bought, uh, this is from Susan, I bought a pot of hyacinths from my windowsill and they're now dying off. Do I simply throw them away? Oh, I hate uh, the idea of throwing them away. No, I, yeah. I, wouldn't, I would hate to think the plants have become disposable now as well. No, I would say not. Um, the, the, leave them die off naturally now. So what what what, what she got there was Christmas hyacinths. They're, they're hyacinth bulbs, which it. Uh, the technical bit is they'd gone through a period of cold stratification to trick them into thinking that, that it was springtime so that they flower for Christmas. Um, they won't do that again, So what? but they will flower again. So what you do now is just treat them as a normal hyacinth bulb, which is when the foliage has died off, wrap them in a bit of newspaper or leave them in a dry pot of soil uh, until, the, until, sorry, until the autumn, say September, October, then plant them outdoors, plant them outside, and they'll flower away next spring in the garden for you. Uh, hi, uh, Patricia. Just wondering if you could ask Peter, please. What would he suggest I plant for flowering boxes for the end of May? 
uh, hate these questions because you never <laughs> know what's going to be in flower. Um, and I was just talking to a lady there whose whose daughter is getting married. And I imagine this is the same thing. It's yeah. either or, or, or it's the first Holy Communion and people are trying yeah. to plan because they want for the photographs. Yeah, so if they had been asking me what to plant in terms of shrubs, I, because I've just been thinking about it for the last 20 minutes, I could have told them you could be looking at things like the Mexican orange blossom or the mock orange or spirea. They'll all give loads of colour in the last week in May. In, in terms of flower boxes, the last week, I used to be, you see, it's a bit early for bedding, summer bedding. It's not too early to be planting it out, but it'll be a bit too early to be getting masses of colour. But I would say it's going to be, then on the other hand, it's going to be a bit too late for your spring bedding, which are your polyanthus and your spring bulbs. They'll all be finished, I would say to you. So I think I would be looking at summer bedding. Sorry, I'm thinking out loud as I'm answering this one, Trish. Oh, you're fine. It's sounding good. I would be looking at the summer bedding, your petunias, uh, maybe some geraniums and things like that. But the best advice I can give you is get to your local garden centre in the first, second week of May. See what they have. See what's showing colour. Plant them feed them and they'll come on even more it will be summer bedding plants that you're looking at though. Oh yeah but it's, it's good to get planning she's doing the right thing. Yes, uh, Noel has a red robin hedge in its second season. Should I feed and trim it and if so when and with what? Yes and right now so I would again trim it. Uh, I love the red robin grown as a hedge but it, 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 a well kept and a well maintained red robin hedge looks stunning. Uh, uh, a badly or poorly maintained one doesn't. It looks very gappy and, and airy and leggy. So do trim it to keep it good and bushy. Trim it again before the end of February. Feed it with any good general purpose fertiliser will do really, even a mulch of farmyard manure or something like that. Uh, just something to increase the, 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 the nitrogen levels around the soil, around the root, root zone uh, and trim it now. And yeah, that should be enough for the year. Listener, Justin. Hi, Patricia Kajas-Peter. When is the right time to transplant Comfy? Again, it's like what I said earlier that that you should be fine up to the end of February because it is the right time to be moving plants anytime between November and the end of February. But because it's so mild now, there is a bit of a risk. But the sooner the better. Okay, get out and enjoy the garden. And we've lovely spring weather this week, so enjoy it. And it's nice and mild as well. All right, uh, Peter, we leave it there. Perfect. If I could just mention very quickly, uh, just apropos of what we were talking about at the very start of the piece, Trish, with with the declining insect species, this has nothing to do with me, but people may be interested. There is the National Biodiversity Conference on in Dublin Castle this week coming, or next week, the 20th and 21st of February. Uh, in Dublin Castle so if anyone's in Dublin next week this should be a very interesting uh, seminar to to go to there'll be a lot of exhibits and things that it's all about the uh, sustainability and biodiversity being organised by the National Biodiversity and it's something we all need to be concerned about All right, Peter have a good week that's where I leave you for today my thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing Nick is with you for the afternoon and I'll talk to you tomorrow at uh, 10 o'clock until I'm Patricia Messenger good afternoon to celebrate our latest radio ratings C103 is dishing out Free money. Free money. Grab your share of five grand with C103 Cash Tracks. Every morning at 8.15, Simon will reveal the C103 Superstar of the Day. Then stay listening for two tracks back to back from that artist. When they play, be caller 50 to win your share of 5,000 euro. C103 Cash Tracks. With Cavanaugh's, the new name for Ford and Mallow. For new and used car sales, visit Cavanaugh's. Starts Monday on the home of Cork's greatest hits. C103.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save 